Hey there, it's Kale. I've been back from vacation for a while, and I'm happy to be back in the saddle and host the next installment of Byline. However, I did just want to make you, dear listener, aware of something. A while ago during the winter, Byline moved episode premiere dates back to a bi-weekly format. Now, though, we're going to scale premieres back to once a month in order to make room for future projects from I, myself, and the rest of the Times' digital and new media contributors. We've got some exciting stuff we're looking forward to work on and bring out, and we thank you for your continued support. And that's it. Let's go ahead and begin. From the Times of Northwest Indiana and nwi.com slash podcasts, you're listening to Byline, the podcast about the newspaper's most fascinating stories and the reporters who tell them. I'm Kale Wilk, and this week Byline looks at the developments of the sale of Strachan Van Til. We'll talk to a professor that will shed light on the state of the grocery industry. Well, so, I mean, grocery stores usually have very thin profit margins, right? You're making maybe 1, 2, 3% on what you sell. As well as look at the pressing problems of food deserts. You know, when you are at the street level and you see how it directly impacts people, you understand it, it's more than just a store closing. You know, it's a, it's a food system that's, that's collapsing for many of these communities. Right now I'm at the grocery store, striking Van Til in Munster, doing my weekly shopping run and stocking up on usual items. I've picked up some lettuce, tomatoes, lunch meat, cheese, bread, oatmeal, and yogurt. The parking lot outside is a little dead. It was a Thursday afternoon, though, so it's not the most hopping. But it may be a sign of the impending future of this store location. Since April, the community's been waiting to see what is going to become of Strack and Van Til, a longtime familiar grocery giant in the region, as well as the partnering stores of Ultra Foods and Town and Country Market. Around the end of that month, the news came out that its parent company, Central Grocers, sometimes called Centrella, was so deep in debt that it wanted to auction 22 of its stores to a buyer. This all comes at an interesting and tough time for grocery stores, the effects of which have been creeping slowly into the region for a while now. And that's what we're going to get into this episode. To start out, let's go back in time a little bit to April 19th, to be exact. Doing this podcast is one of several different tasks I do as a digital producer. And on that day, I was actually doing a web shift, meaning I was the one curating the movement of stories on the Times' website and social media accounts. And on that day, there were some tips that came our way, several to this episode's featured reporter. Or they had employee meetings where they told employees that there was a pending sale, that they were going to close nearly half of their locations, that there are only going to be 22 stores remaining, and obviously some people were, you know, people were upset, they were confused. In times like that, people call the press to figure out, you know, what's going on, can somebody get, you know, some information on this. That's Joseph Pete again, who is our talented business reporter that often is behind breaking business news in the region. We get constant tips about closing or, you know, things that don't uh, pan out. 
you know, at first I was just hoping this was, you know, something, uh, you know, hoping it, there was nothing to it. It was just, you know, but then we got a couple more. And then so I immediately started, you know, putting out calls and emails and trying to figure out what was going on. I discovered some of my previous contacts at the company had apparently been laid off, uh, but I was able to then get a, um, without being previously aware of that, but then uh, was able to get a hold of people. And then the facts started to kind of pour out about um, what was going on. And so he wrote up and put out a story that afternoon about the planned sale of Streck and Van Til. Joseph continued to follow this huge development for weeks as more details came out. There was a lawsuit by a union to make sure a labor agreement was honored, an announcement of layoffs, when operations would be expected to wind down, as well as the analysis that the parent company was $225 million in debt, and that thousands of creditors came in eventually to participate in the sale. The end result, as far as we can tell for now, based on when this episode is premiered, is there are 22 stores Central Grocers has been trying to sell, as well as its warehouse in Joliet, Illinois. There's been interest expressed by Jewel Osco, a grocery chain headquartered in Atasca, Illinois, that has stores throughout the Chicago metro area, including many already in the region that are familiar among residents. But the thing about the sale is it really ends up being more than just a bitter and liquidation scenario. We're still trying to unpack like some of the impact and everything, but Central Grocers had been supplied nearly 400 independent grocery stores throughout Chicago, Northwest Indiana and Chicagoland. Basically, if you go through Hammond, you go through East Chicago, you go through anywhere and you see those little corner stores um, or, you know, independent ones really anywhere, their supplier was most likely uh, Central Grocers. One of those effects is the hit to local business. Dragon Van Til was a huge, locally operated institution in the region, and one of the two largest locally owned chains in Indiana. The same effects have interestingly enough been felt by Marsh Supermarkets, headquartered in Indianapolis. The company has also been announcing closings. When I was in Bloomington at Indiana University, there were at least two of those stores in the city, and during my senior year, one of them announced it was closing. That locally owned status really ends up meaning something though. Strike and Ventil has been my go-to place for groceries while I was growing up, and even up until now. It's where my family has gone to get our meals for Thanksgiving. Chicken pieces, for dinners from its deli, or just a quick stop if we needed to pick up something. Well, we've had the, uh, I've had Strax chicken and, like, Mastacholi, like, literally, probably dozens, if not scores of times, like, over the course of my life. It's been a staple of different parties and family gatherings. We've, you know, shopped there to get stuff to feed, like, the extended family for Christmas or Thanksgiving. I've heard stories about, like, you know, weddings where the caterer flaked out and it felt, you know, th- those almost going to be a crisis. But a couple people like got in the car real quick, made a run to Strax, and it saved the wedding. But that locally owned status also meant a huge community investor and employer. Strack and Van Til had a massive web of connections in regards to donations. And Joseph also reported that there could be over a thousand layoffs as a result of this. There's not necessarily a guarantee all of them could find a job with whoever purchases these stores. Recall that in the last two episodes on population loss and gain in the region, job growth was not necessarily a positively trending statistic for the area. These developments certainly don't bode well for that either. It's like an integral part to our local community. It's something that distinguishes us like, you know, you want to have some individuality or uniqueness to your community, something that you guys built yourselves 
something that isn't just like some you know you don't want this wallpaper suburban landscape where everything is a panera bread or noodles and company or a target or you know some other business where you know you're sending all your money out of the community too there have been an incredible local sponsor for a number of nonprofits, for a number of youth sports and athletic leagues they've had their hands in so much when you have some distant corporation like walmart they don't care they have a budget of like you know, some of these out-of-state ones will have a budget of like 10000 for giving back to the community. They're not going to spend anywhere near as much as, you know, uh, Strachan Van Til had on local philanthropic and charitable causes. However, if we look at the trail of how we got to here, this might have been something that was very slowly coming down the tracks based on shopping preferences and trends. To help explain that, I talked with this person. Sure. Um, I'm Micah Pollack. I'm assistant professor of economics at Indiana University Northwest. Micah has been at the school since 2012 and keeps a tab on developments in the business realm through various research projects. In regards to grocery stores, it's not an industry that's really all that stable to begin with. Well, so, I mean, grocery stores usually have very thin profit margins, right? You're making maybe 1%, 2 3% on what you sell. And on top of that, you have a lot of like perishable goods that you have to deal with. Uh, you know, also like deli and kind of prepared foods, stuff that doesn't necessarily last very long, so you have a lot of waste. And I guess the grocery store industry itself hasn't, you know, it's got, it's always had those thin profit margins, which isn't necessarily a problem unless there's a lot of other things happening, causing stress, right? So when the market's changing very rapidly, you don't have kind of a bigger buffer of profit margins to kind of weather the storm. And so that's kind of why you see things happening as quickly as you do in kind of the grocery industry. And shopping preferences have changed. There's popularity in searching for organic options, often available at places like Whole Foods, which has become a dominant name in grocery chains. If you walk into one of those stores, another eye-catching feature is its food stations or courts where meals are hot and ready. Or there's appeal in one-stop shopping offered by Target, Walmart, or Meyer, where you can shop for tools or clothing, and then you can go pick up frozen dinners on another side of the store. There's even delivery options like Blue Apron, where your meals get delivered to your door in a refrigerated box, complete with recipes. And it seems Strack and Van Til made an effort to compete with these features. It renovated several stores and updated their interiors installed food stations, boosted local offerings from Northwest Indiana's craft brewers as an example, and even offered an online ordering system where your groceries could be picked out by workers and available to pick up at the door when it was ready. But that just didn't seem to be enough. And the, the rebranding of the stores is a big part of, doing, of competing more with places like Whole Foods, and it's not just the, you know, rebranding the stores. It's also things like, like I mentioned, you know, offering sushi in the stores and, you know, curbside pickup and home delivery and ordering online and, and a whole variety of things trying to find kind of a niche in the grocery industry today, which is what not just Track, but all the other grocery stores are, are kind of doing as well as they face challenges from like, not just Whole Foods, but, you know, Menards is carrying more groceries and, and more and produce and things like that. And uh, convenience stores are expanding. And so you're kind of getting assault on all the different fronts. You know, you can order things from Amazon and kind of, of, uh, you know, Blue Apron and all these kind of online uh, meal prep uh, places now. And so how do you exist in a grocery store, as a grocery store in that kind of environment when you only have like a couple percentage points of, of profit margin to even kind of work with, you know, to try to adapt? What this also ends up speaking to is the ever-creeping effects of the dubbed retail apocalypse, where brick-and-mortar stores are finding themselves having to close up shop. 
Joseph has written several stories on region restaurants that were staples as well, having to close. Here in Northwest Indiana, obviously, you know, we were steel manufacturing history and then automation, you know, productivity changes led to us needing fewer workers to do the same jobs as before. And so that kind of broader trend of automation is, is continuing. And often people say, well, you know, that's okay because we've got retail sales, which are relatively safe. You know, we can go work in grocery stores and retail shops. And that's really not necessarily going to be true in the long run. I mean, you see increase in productivity across the board. And so even though it may not be obvious how you replace a grocery store worker with a robot or some kind of automated device, you know, you do have that happen, whether it's self-checkout or, or things like that. And so... It's a good reminder that really no job is immune to new technology and innovation and productivity changes. So that's kind of like the the automation side of things. But then on the other hand, um, what you're talking about with community currency, there's, you know, if times are tough and your budgets are tight, you're going to care more about the bottom line dollar that you have to spend for something. So you're going to go to kind of the bigger chains where you can get maybe lower prices because they deal in you know, larger volumes. Um, but it's important to remember that you get value as a consumer from not just you know buying the product, but also from who you support and kind of where you buy the good. So maybe it's a little more expensive buying something at a local store that's a mom and pop store rather than a big chain. Uh, but if you value that type of community, then that's something you would be willing to maybe pay a little extra for. But another question that's looming is, how is this going to affect local food supplies and food security, particularly among low-income communities? We'll return to that thought after a brief break. Hey listeners, it's Matt Schubert, producer of That's So Region, the podcast about all things region. It's uh, Joseph Pete, also a panelist on That's So Region, and the best freestyle rapper on the Time Staff. We talk about all sorts of region topics, what to do, where to go, can there actually be a gourmet taco? How many pierogi you can stuff in your gullet, and why it's pierogi and not pierogies. Make sure to download us on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, and visit nwi.com Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. Who knows? Sometimes it's every week, sometimes it's every other week. But make sure you listen to the end. for our, It's jam-packed with our region recommendations of what you can do for fun and entertainment in Northwest Indiana and Greater Chicagoland. And we're back. So we've touched on how the sale of Strachan Van Til's stores is going to bring about some consequences with local employment and investment in community entities. But now, what about making sure there's enough food to actually go around? Or what about basic access to it and the concept of food deserts? I wanted to try and get down to the community level here and see what people felt. So I went to Ultra Foos just off of Ridge Road in an unincorporated part of Gary. Gary itself isn't a place where many grocery options are available at all. Within the sale of central grocery stores, three Ultra Foods locations weren't desired to be purchased, and thus are being liquidated. There were signs on the windows on the day I went, which was Monday, saying the store had six days left of being open. I tried to do a man-on-the-street-style form of interviewing by asking people how they felt about the Streck and Van Til situation, how far they had to commute from to get to this particular store, and if its closing is going to affect how they get groceries. 
Although, after standing outside for a while, I was approached by management and asked to leave, saying that I was soliciting. However, of the people I asked, I managed to get thoughts from one woman named Joan Smith from Hammond. Uh, so, yeah, it's bad for the, the employees. They're left in the dark not knowing anything, which I think is a shame for them. Yeah. And, and you know, in, in regards to how often do you shop here? Uh, once every couple of weeks. Okay. So. So then, you know, with the store closing, is that going to affect how you, you know, end up getting groceries? Is Probably it gonna not hurt? so much me, because I live in Hammond. Uh-huh. But, you know, it is nice, you know, to come here when they run their sales and stuff. It's close to home, so it's just a real shame. So you think, are you going to have to travel farther then to go and get groceries, do you think, or? No, not necessarily. I mean, we got plenty of small stores by us, but it's nice, you know, to come to the big stores here sometime and find things I can't find in the little stores, so... Not too often. Okay. We also put a call out on the Times' social media channels asking if there were regular shoppers or even employees at Ultra Foods that were going to be affected by the store's closings, and if they would want to share their thoughts with us. We didn't receive any responses from that method. And I'd like to note something about this, too. Going into this line of questioning, I understood it probably wasn't going to be entirely successful. This is definitely a difficult matter in trying to approach someone about being laid off or their potential status of living in a food desert or being low income. We don't mean to come across as insensitive and do this with the most respect possible. But understand that our mission as journalists is to report news and in turn document history. Decades later, someone may look back at this and be curious to find the most complete picture possible on how the community felt when its largest locally owned grocery store finally ended its reign after decades of being in existence. But shoppers, of course, aren't the only option to talk to about this. I also reached out to those on the advocacy front, particularly the Northwest Indiana Food Council. So I was able to organize an interview with this person. I'm Ann Massey. I'm president of the Northwest Indiana Food Council. And I also work in distribution with a few northern Indiana farms like Seven Sons and Pastures Delights. And she was also able to bring along this person to join us. I'm Terry Saltzman with Purdue Lake County Extension Office, and I'm what they call Community Wellness Coordinator. Both the Food Council and Purdue Extension Office are involved in the communities in various but similar ways. The Food Council gets right down to the community level by seeking and pushing for sustainable food systems and access for all of Northwest Indiana, particularly in its food insecure locations. Purdue Extension is headed by Purdue University in West Lafayette and provides research and suggestions for solutions in all 92 of Indiana's counties, the food solutions being one of the topics under its umbrella. As two people that are very much involved with producing community solutions, I was first curious what their initial reactions were to the strike in Van Til news in April. It was bad news. I, I, it, was, it made me heart sick because not only did those stores provide um, a retail outlet for low-income audiences because their prices were within their range, but a lot of those stores, too, also supplied the food pantries with you know some of their, their leftover um, items and so now we have a double stress. Yeah, I much of the same sentiment. It, I was heartbroken. I come from a, a family business that's been around for nearly a hundred years, and the mom and pop operations, the locally owned businesses, are such an important part to the vitality of our community. And 
seeing that our last locally owned grocery store chain couldn't make it is really disheartening um, and a little bit scary in terms of what the food pantry is going to do now. And, and I was also curious what they had observed in regards to community reactions. Yeah, I have one food pantry specifically in Gary who actually came to my office because they are so concerned about what they're going to do. I ultra specifically provided them with quite a bit of their food and they are open um, once a week every week this food pantry and they see an increase almost every week in the number of people that they're serving and now they're kind of like scrambling to figure out where they're going to get the needed supplies from so you know she was literally crying begging me to try to figure out what can be done to help her get that food for these families and now you have summer coming up kids are going to be out of school so they won't be getting school lunches um, so even more food is going to be needed for for the kids and um, it's heartbreaking you know when you are at the street level and you see how it directly impacts people you understand it, it's more than just a store closing you know it's a it's a food system that's that's collapsing for many of these communities I wanted to get an idea of what food deserts exist in northwest Indiana. The USDA's website defines it as such. A food desert is a low-income census tract where either a substantial number or share of residents has low access to a supermarket or large grocery store. Low-income tracts are defined as those where at least 20% of the people have income at or below the federal poverty levels for family size, or where median family income for the tract is at or below 80% of the surrounding area's median family income. Tracts qualify as low-access tracts if at least 500 persons, or 33% of their population, live more than a mile from a supermarket or large grocery store. For rural census tracts, the distance is more than 10 miles. Sure. This is a map of Lake County, and you will see that there are some areas here shaded in dark green, and those are USDA-designated food deserts within Lake County. Terry had brought a map that showed where the food deserts were in northwest Indiana. I understand that affluence and resources aren't spread equally across the region. But in this context... It was worse than I thought. As a matter of fact, um, 21 to 25 percent of Lake County is considered a food desert. And um, does that also show some of uh, Porter and, and LaPorte counties? Yeah, too? Um, just portions. You can see a little bit of not of LaPorte, but of Porter County right here. We do have this major food desert here up by Portage um, and maybe like a couple right here in, in uh, some of the rural areas. But it, this is East Chicago right here, and then this is the Illinois line. This is um, mostly Gary, and then we have some of Merrillville through, down through, it's like northern Merrillville, it's right here. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some of Lake Station in there, a little bit of Highland, not too much. Um, but just because a physical grocery store may not exist in a large swath of land doesn't mean there isn't any food at all. It's available often in processor packaged forms at a corner store or gas station. But more often than not, those are not healthy options. Um, and one of the other, you know, I think stereotypical things that I hear a lot is, um, well, you know, she's going in and buying a big gulp and a bag of potato chips, so mm-hmm. she's obviously, you know, she could go a few days without eating anyway. 
but when they when folks have to go into the corner store and purchase most of what they what, what they eat there's no healthy options for them or either they are, are priced out of their price range mm-hmm. so in order to get to a grocery store some families may have the luxury of an automobile and some may rely on a bus system if one even exists if not then what do you do with some of these grocery stores being slated to close, like the Ultra Foods that I stopped at, that's creating another hole for many of those people nearby there. And Maryville is slated to lose two grocery stores, which definitely presents a problem for that area as well. Anne also noted in this interview her concerns on what the status of SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or food stamps, and WIC, the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, would be. Analyses of the Trump administration's budget proposal show millions of dollars in cuts to spending programs like SNAP. A development like that puts even more pressure on hungry families struggling to get food in a food desert or from a food bank. If you have a third of your population or more that does not have transportation or access to transportation, so even if there is um, a grocery store within, you know, uh, a few minute drive, if you have a third of your residents that don't have transportation, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter a whole lot. Well, and, and especially too, when you look at, you know, try to, to do this experiment yourself, get on a bus and go to the grocery store and mm-hmm. see how much you can logistically carry back. And especially if you're a senior citizen or you've got three children tagging along behind you, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. It is not easy at all. So, mm-hmm. And not all of our grocery stores except Snap and Wick which is another mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> obstacle mm-hmm. for a lot of families that they can finally get to the store, that it actually has affordable pricing and mm-hmm. accepts um, EBT. And I think the rate of the SNAP benefits, too, has not kept pace with inflation. Yeah. So the SNAP dollar actually buys less today than it did two years ago. So we have a number of mitigating factors mm-hmm. going on at the same time But couldn't one just decide, all right, we'll help and build a grocery store here in this affected area? That kind of seems like what happened nearby in Chicago when Whole Foods in the city announced in 2013 it would install a store in the city's Englewood neighborhood. Not only a place that's a food desert, but also a south side location notorious for its crime. But arranging such a deal is a little more difficult. Terry would point out that it involves making sure there's going to be demand for a store in the first place. And she says that there often indeed is in low-income areas like this. Because I did um, some research, and Gary is actually losing $42 million a year on people shopping outside of Gary for food. So if they had some market opportunities back in Gary, they could potentially recapture some of those, that $42 million. Um... So there's a, a little bit of a, uh, an assumption, too, that when you see a food desert, that there's no demand left there for, mm-hmm. for healthy food. And that's a, a really bad assumption to make because it's absolutely not true. A concern as mentioned before by Ann and Terry is what is going to happen with the local food banks, who had a bolster in supplies and monetary donations from Strack and Van Til. So I reached out to the Food Bank of Northwest Indiana to take a temperature check and was able to speak with Steve Beekman, the executive director. Yeah, well, um, we're the leader in the fight against hunger in the region. We've been doing it for three decades, and 
Every day we try to acquire, store, and distribute meals to people in need, specifically here at Lake and Porter County. And we do that through our partner agencies and which are food pantries and soup kitchens. And uh, we serve about 22,000 people every month through our programs and services. According to a yearly summary from 2016, the food bank says it distributed 4.2 million meals across Lake and Porter counties that year. It estimates it serves around 22,000 people each month. Equivalent, it says, to around 15,000 households. Strecken Van Til has assisted the food bank since its inception in the 1980s. Food banks are part of a much larger picture of food insecurity in the U.S. The USDA reported that food insecurity declined to 12.7% in 2015, down from a high of 14.9% in 2011. But it also notes that 5% of those insecure were in very low food security, meaning their normal eating patterns are disrupted significantly due to a lack of resources. And in 7.8% of that, children were food insecure. So food banks try their best to help provide as much assistance as possible to hungry people. So the news of striking Van Til wasn't great on that end either. Nationally, there's a lot of... uh grocery stores uh, consolidating, and, um, and we know here in the region that the, some of them have been closing for the past couple of years. And so that in itself is concerning for food banks across the country and the nation. Um, but specifically with the Strack and Vantil and Ultra, we've had a long-standing relationship with Strack and Vantil stores and their leadership. They've been part of our board of directors for many years, and so it's it's a big they play a big role in um, how the food bank came about as well as how we're we're able to um, continue over the last several years and last couple of decades. So you know that's an important part for us is having that leadership from Strackenville. There's our they are our local grocery store and it is a big impact for us. But but we know that. Um, we have to uh, do our part in serving the community and whatever might happen with um, Shrek and Van Til and their stores, um, you know, we'll continue to evolve and change with the times. So. Steve told me that around 58% of the donated food ends up coming from local grocery stores. And he noted that places like Jewel Osco and Meyer are contributors as well alongside Shrek and Van Til. But I was curious if the absence of Shrek and Van Til is going to take a hit on that. Is the new buyer going to entirely fill that void? It's hard to tell. Great question. I, you know, I don't know exactly who and when and how that will all take place, but we do want to be at the forefront of if it is a, a different entity that comes in that takes over the stores, that we want to be a part of the food donation part process, um, just with like all of our other grocery stores. So we definitely want to be in front of it and, it's too early to tell what type of impact that will be. Uh, we don't know if it's going to be more or if it's going to be less. I think that's just the uncertainty that we are facing with. Um, but what we know is in the region, we, there's a, more than 100,000 people that are food insecure. And it's our mission to try to provide food assistance for those individuals um, in our area. So that's one thing that we always keep focused on focus a lot of our attention to fighting that uh, that challenge. Back over in the newsroom, Joseph and much of our staff are feeling sad about these developments. But as they go along, he's serving a role the newspaper provides and sometimes having to be the one to break the tough news, 
and provide clarity on the fallout. Um, unfortunately, I have been the bearer of bad news. Uh, uh, I don't know. I, I just hope I've been able to provide people with, you know, clear and accurate information, the best information we have at any given time. This is a big local chain. People have relied on them for decades, and, you know, th this is meaningful to people. And I hate that it's bad news, but it's like I don't control what I'm reporting. It's just, you know, what happens is what, is what happens. Becca Strecky Van Til and Munster, when I pulled up to the checkout area, I noticed there were papers printed and taped to the poles marking the register numbers. And here's what they read. Data from May 8th, it begins by saying, Dear Valued Customer, as you may know, the parent company of Strachan Van Til recently filed for relief under Chapter 11 and is in active negotiations regarding a potential sale of our stores. It goes on a bit more and notes that a 10% discount off purchases for seniors on the first Wednesday of each month is no longer effective, saying it's a difficult but necessary action. The letter ends by saying, Please know that we appreciate you choosing our stores and we remain focused on delivering the excellent service you have come to expect. Thank you for your continued support. Sincerely, Jeff Strack, President and CEO. Reading this is bittersweet. And the words feel like they describe more than just this particular discount the stores can't continue to provide in their remaining days. Because the expectations the company has provided have gone beyond the tomatoes I picked up from the stand or cheese slices I took from the refrigerators. Now, with the eventual new buyer, we don't know entirely what to expect. Byline is a production of the Times of Northwest Indiana. You can find all of our episodes at nwi.com slash podcasts. Byline is also on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can just type in NWI Byline in the search bar and we should pop up. If you've got a media player and want to download our episodes or listen on the go, Byline is available on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. We just kindly ask that you rate us and leave a review because it actually really helps. And we like to hear from you, whether that's constructive comments, feedback, or suggestions for topics you'd like to hear more about. You can do so by dropping an email to kale.wilk at nwi.com. Just to remind you one more time, in order to make room for future projects from the Times of Northwest Indiana's digital section, Byline will scale back premieres of new episodes to once every month, meaning the next episode is scheduled to come out July 10th. Reporting for this week's episode came from Joseph Pete and myself, Kale Wilk. We'd like to thank Micah Pollock, Ann Massey, Terry Zaltzman, and Steve Beekman for taking time to be interviewed for this episode. Statistics and data came from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Northwest Indiana Food Council, and the Food Bank of Northwest Indiana. Last but not least, a big thanks goes to Summer Moore, the Times' Digital and Audience Engagement Editor and Byline's Creator. She's the lead for this show that makes sure our offerings and productions are certified fresh and healthy for your audio consumption. I'm Kale Wilk, and from the Times of Northwest Indiana, thank you for listening. See you next time.